Welcome to Let It Low Paid at Large. I'm Let It Low Paid. Oil-rich Venezuela was once the most prosperous nation in Latin America, but in recent years, it has faced political crises and economic ruin. A la calle, a new film co-directed and produced by Nelson G. Navarrete and Max Caicedo is a first-hand account of the efforts of ordinary Venezuelans to reclaim their democracy from Nicolas Maduro's dictatorship. It premieres on November 11th at the Doc NYC Film Festival and will be available online for the duration of the festival. Festival, And I'm very pleased to welcome Nelson G. Navarrete and Max Caicedo to our show now. Hi. Hello, Leonard. Hi, Leonard. How's it going? It's okay, it, but it feels kind of odd to be discussing the political situation in another country today. Uh, although, aren't there some striking parallels? Venezuela is deeply divided along partisan lines. There have been many demonstrations where the police have overreacted. Uh, President Nicolas Maduro holds large rallies before adoring crowds. You're yeah, laughing. I mean, right? I think there's, a, there's a lot of things very uh, parallel between uh, both scenarios. Um, maybe Max can answer this question a little better than me. Okay. Yeah, I think, I think there's a lot of parallels. I mean, I think the biggest thing, and I believe the show before us was even talking about it, which is uh, the role of media in how determining, you know, how people think. I think we see this, you know, you look at, what we have going on here in the States and you look at what's going on in Venezuela and the two big things that you see is, or one of the biggest things that you see is that the media, each side, you know, pro Maduro, pro opposition, pro Trump, pro Biden has uh, their own media outlets and their own media places that they look for their information and they gather um, quite different conclusions based on how they're, you know, where they align politically and where they look for their news. And there's a similar division in Venezuela, as you see that, you know, here and there. So, I, you know, it's interesting to look at that because you look at elections over there and, you know, you look at the opposition media sources, for example, and they're going to tell you one narrative of what's going on. And then, for example, fraud or what have you. And you look at the, the sources from the from Maduro and they're saying, yeah, look, we want a historic election. Democracy has prevailed. And so I think, you know, depending on which side you're on, depending on the narrative, you're going to want to listen to. And we have a similar situation today um, already, as we can see with the statements of both Biden and Trump uh, last night. Aren't elections for the Venezuelan National Assembly scheduled for December 6th? In light of what's happened following the previous elections, what can we expect from this one? Yeah, elections are for the National Assembly in Venezuela actually happen every December. They switch the um, the presidency of the National Assembly every year if they want to, but it goes all to a vote. Um, currently, Guaido, which is the representative, uh, the president in charge of Venezuela, who is the president of the National Assembly, um, could be reelected, but it's a scenario of um, uncertainty. Um, there's still a little bit of division in the opposition. Uh, up until this point, there's um, some rumors that the opposition is coming together and aligning itself um, to have a more concrete and um, like unified voice again. But, but haven't all, they already vowed the to, to boycott the election because they said uh, there'll be irregularities and uh, the, the election will likely be fraudulent and rigged in favor of Maduro's socialist party? 
I mean, it's, there's no uh, secret that elections have been um, not transparent in the last maybe 10 years in Venezuela. This is the point that we touch in the documentary. Mm -hmm. um, we make it very uh, clear to, to the viewer that elections is not a system that you could count on to make your voice be heard, and especially in the, you know, the last three, four years. So it's not, you know, I, the opposition is unified in the idea of uh, moving forward with a different voice, but we don't count on international eyes to, to have an uh, election that's free and fair. After the opposition won two-thirds of the vote in parliamentary elections in December 2015, Maduro said the people had made a big mistake and he called it a coup d'etat. Um, what did he do then? Oof, that's, uh, a, that's you, a complicated He responded to a movement calling uh, uh, th that wanted to recall him uh, by maintaining power through the National Electoral Co the Council, the, the military, and the nation's highest court, the Supreme Tribunal. So he just ignored so, the results of the election? Yes. Uh, it's it's kind of complicated. He did a lot of different things. A lot of different things went into leading up to that. Um, you know, going into the elections in, of, of that of December twenty fifteen. Sorry, um, right leading up to that, uh, there was a few things that you know, looking at what was going on in Venezuela at the time. First, uh, Maduro and his party had control of the National Assembly um, leading into that election. And similar to what happens here when the elections occur, the, the time between when the election occurs and when the new uh, representatives take power, there's a, there's, a, there's a gap there. And so, you know, the elections happened in, in December of 2015. And in the, in the space between when the elections took place and the opposition won that overwhelming victory, and then, there, and then when they sat down to take power, a few moves were made. Um, one, of the, one of the biggest ones was... Um, uh, sort of stacking the Supreme Court and, and, and develop and using the Supreme Court to essentially um, be in his favor, so that the, the entirety that the sounds familiar. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and the, and then the other thing was um, he had control of what, like you mentioned, the National Electoral um, sort of committee. And so what ended up happening is, in addition to using the Supreme Court. To uh, gain leverage over the National Assembly, he also used the National Electoral Board to disqualify and to um, remove uh, a few key opposition figures um, that had won their seats, and by claiming fraud and, and, that, and invalid elections, uh, that, the, that the elections had a lot of fraud, and that what that did was um, remove um, from the opposition their supermajority. So at that point, you know, like you have here, if you have a supermajority, you can kind of really dictate what the, elect, uh, the legislative agenda is going to be. And so by losing that supermajority, they lost that overwhelming power. And then they still and they found themselves in this place where, you know, they couldn't legislatively overrule anything that the president did. But at the same time, they found themselves facing a Supreme Court that basically ruled with the president. And so that victory and we talk about this in the documentary, although for the people of Venezuela, you know, considered it an overwhelming victory, and they're very happy because they're like, well, look, now finally we've gained control of our government. You know, the, at least the opposition felt that way and its supporters. It wasn't really the 
case. Um, and so and it took a little while for the reality of that to set in um, for, for, for most Venezuelans. So after the this, this Supreme Tribunal the- removed power from the elected National Assembly, there were protests. Uh, and then the Supreme Tribunal reversed its decision in April 2017, reinstated the powers of the National Assembly. So Maduro called for a rewrite of the Constitution? <laughs> yeah. The, 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 those elections that we're speaking of is the last um, fair elections that we had in Venezuela. And it's technically the main victory for the opposition since Chavez was elected. So it was a big hit for Maduro because um, if those um, elections or if the supermajority would have stayed, um, how it, how it was supposed to, because the people from Venezuela voted, then his power would have been challenged, you know. And a, a series of rulings came through, like um, that weren't approved, like the um, like mining decisions and just very important decisions for the next couple years. And as they overturned it, then the people realized that the opposition had no power in the courts. So what happened is people went into the street and started demanding change. And yeah, Maduro decided to, you know, do with that whatever he wanted, but it was too late. So, you know, a series of events of protests started happening. And th- this is what we explore in the documentary. This is maybe the first important pillar of our story that um, where we follow most of our characters through this protest in 2017, starting on April. And you have footage of the police shooting live ammunition at protesters. So were many, yeah. did many people die during the protests? Uh, yeah, uh, yes, many people died. Uh, there was, I mean, I don't have the number in front of me, but there was, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Max, but about 130 people died. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was about, uh, I can't remember the numbers, I'm sorry, but it was, yes, it was, many, like thousands of what? people were injured and hundreds of people were taken to political prisons. And this was over the course of three months. And uh, we capture we capture um, whatever we could when we could because this was happening every day, and through some of our characters and the overall story, we show how you know some some there was some police brutality, there was uh, unnecessary use of force, and a lot of things that we see in a lot of um, governments that are excessive with the force, at least from the police side. And then in May 2018, a new presidential election was called. But uh, as you point out, many of the opposition leaders had been jailed, exiled or forbidden to run. And weren't voters told that they could lose their jobs or social welfare if they didn't vote for Maduro? Yeah. Uh, I mean, at that point, really, we're I mean, I think 2015, as, as Nelson mentioned, was you know, the last time you sort of had uh, what seemed like a free and fair election and where the popular will was said to be accurately measured. And every subsequent election or electoral referendum or something leading up to that, you know, you start to lose legitimacy more and more. And by the time you get to 2018, May of 2018, that presidential election, you're really looking at um, an electoral field or and that's just completely distorted, um, not only as a result of the way uh, individual voters were being treated when they went to vote, you know, oftentimes being having to identify themselves, how they were voting. Um, like you mentioned, they're, at, you know, in Venezuela, access to food, 
um, is often in large, large part um, controlled by government programs. And so there were instances where people would go to vote and have to show their identification card that gives them access to these um, food programs called CLAP and, you know, essentially being the, their vote being tied and their support for the party being tied to um, that access to the food. I think beyond that, um, what you ended up also having was, you know, Leopoldo Lopez, Henry Capriles, some of the largest party's leaders, most popular leaders, were either jailed barred from, or barred from running. Um, and so, you know, it's kind of like, you know, to give you an analogous situation here, it's kind of like you have, you know, if we have Biden and Trump running against each other, it's like to say, you know, oh, the Democratic presidential nominee, Biden, you know, is no, isn't allowed to run, you know, and it's like, oh, well, how can that be fair? You know, the person with the most name recognition that we've been putting all the support behind all of a sudden can't run, you know, does that seem, you know, over, over what, you know, over charges that are still have yet to be um, proven in any way, shape or form in the court of law. And so by the time we get to May 2018. But, but, but wait, but Maduro didn't yell, lock him up, lock him up, did he, at his rallies? Forget it. I'm Ooh. sorry. I'm looking again for no. parallels. Every time you tell me something, I see something <laughs> similar to what's been going on in our country. Well, yeah. I will say at that point, he had already locked them up. So it would have been yeah. superfluous for him to said anything <laughs> at that point. Um, yeah, some like yeah, our, I, one of our main characters, Leopoldo Lopez, he, in 2014, uh, together with the student movement, he was actually put in prison for 14 years, you know, for... He had been the mayor of Caracas. Yeah, he was the mayor of Caracas uh, of a district called... Um, uh, help me here, Max. Oh, I can't do the tip of my tongue. Well, it's a Chacao. very important district that... Yeah, Chacao. Chacao. It's a very important yeah. district that... Um, was showing a lot of movement, a lot of prosperity. The police was, um, it was very safe. It was one of the first times that Caracas was safe. So he had a lot of movement and he was young. And yes, you know, uh, a lot of people were supporting him. And in the primary elections against Chavez, he also, he almost became the main candidate to run against Chavez when in Chavez's last election. But in 2014, he saw together with other opposition uh, leaders, this movement, this student movement, and he decided to put a lot of support against, uh, with it and, you know, the government targeting. And he's an example of, uh, you know, a pres- uh, an important figure in the opposition who was put in jail. But just like him, there was uh, military personnel who was put in jail. There was, like, activists that were put in jail. Um, you know, have family member who has been exiled. This is not something that's been happening, you know, in, in those elections only. You know, slowly and slowly the opposition has been put in this uh, figure of um, almost like attacking the government. So they, they flip the script a lot. Nelson G. Navarrete and Max Caicedo, are the co-directors of a film called A La Calle, and they are my guests today on, excuse me, for getting a little froggy throated here. I've been yelling at the TV a lot. Um, they, they are my guests today on London Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. How did uh, Maduro become president in the first place? Uh, he hadn't he, well, he'd been a, a union leader at one point or, and then elected to the assembly in 2000? 
Mm. Yeah, Maduro. Yeah, they, so yeah, Maduro had a. He's kind of sort of the. Uh, in, in in for EPSU, which is the party of Chavez and the party of Maduro, Maduro's rise to power is sort of one of those. Uh, I can't, I'm trying to find an analogous story, but it's like a big rise to fame. He was a very he was a, your average Joe kind of guy, and then joined the party, and then quickly rose through the ranks. Um, yeah, he was appointed he Minister of Foreign Affairs, exactly. Uh, then, then vice president, vice president. and mm-hmm. and interestingly, the Wall Street Journal. One described Maduro in 2012 as the most capable administrator and politician of Chavez's inner circle. Mm-hmm. Well, so he was really well known, Maduro, for exactly what you're talking about, but also because of his relationships with, as uh, Minister of Foreign Policy, with um, a lot of other countries that were pretty integral to um, Venezuela's success and growth at that point. You know, Chavez and Maduro, um, Chavez specifically had a lot of, um, he didn't have a lot of love for the United States, I'll say that, and for a lot of the Western powers, and he had aligned himself and had built, uh, gotten a lot closer to China and Russia and Cuba, obviously, and Maduro was pretty integral toward the help last foreign, uh, minister, uh, foreign, minister of Foreign Relations into building those relationships and continue to develop them. And so when it came to the point of, you know, Chavez's health declining and all that, Maduro seemed like a natural fit, you know, in addition to his, you know, support within the party, but also because of his sort of international exposure to a lot of these uh, foreign leaders, foreign countries that, you know, obviously want to have a good relationship with whomever comes next, you know. And so Maduro mm-hmm. also benefited from that position as Minister of Foreign Relations um, because he kind of would be able to still go into that role and continue to facilitate these sort of international relationships that uh, Chavez had been working on for quite some time. So he became the uh, the president when Chavez died in March 2013, and then he won a special presidential election that year with um, mm-hmm. 50, a little over 50 percent of the vote as the mm-hmm. United Socialist Party of Venezuela's candidate. Mm-hmm. So yeah. let's talk yeah. a bit about that. Uh, Venezuela's Bolivarian Revolution has been described as socialist, populist, and hyper-populist. Not bad things in themselves. Why aren't they working in Venezuela? Is this a special brand of socialism? <laughs> I think- it's a very. I think that's a very complicated answer. Um, and I think every Venezuelan or uh, person that's not in a analytical point of view, we'll say something different. But, um, you know, in our, in our documentary, we also explore a, some part of this uh, transition into what this socialism became to be in Venezuela. Um, because we've seen in other countries where we have like uh, some, especially in Latin America, you know, we have some type of socialism that kind of works and then then we have one that goes very extreme that doesn't necessarily want to be called like a dictatorship, you know, or communism. But in reality, over time, uh, Venezuela, uh, the the powers of balance became fractured. And that's, you know, right now we're in the very extreme of uh, no types of checks and balances, but we didn't get here overnight. You know, this became with a... Um, a referendum in 1999 where Chavez uh, rewrote the constitution and uh, the centralized power in the 
CNE, which is the electoral um, college, kind of. It's like some similarity there. And then the National Assembly and so on and so forth. Um, everything came centralized. And by centralizing uh, all the powers, um, he gave space to, to no opinion. The press became very oppressed. And then um, the industry, the economic fracture that the industry suffered uh, also became very relevant. And nowadays we don't produce even our own like meat, you know. We became, we went from a country that produced almost all his resources to now importing everything. Uh, you know, we went from making, I don't know, don't quote me on this number, but like from 3 million barrels to like 500,000. So, you know, our infrastructure broke throughout. And yes, we have very powerful and beautiful social programs designed to, to, to grow society, you know, in the right direction. But along the way, you know, I don't know if an economist would say different or like a humanitarian person would say different, but everything just became more corrupt as time passed. Yeah, I think I think something that Nelson's saying that's important, and I and his his, his and I want to kind of focus in on it is, you know, a lot of the conversation around what happened in Venezuela and what's going on in Venezuela is a question of uh, it's often presented in terms of capitalism versus socialism or left versus right, and it's something we talk about in a documentary, and it's something that I think is important to reiterate here now is that it's it, that is not really the conversation when you're talking about Venezuela. And you're talking about the failures that occurred there. It's not the failures. It's not the failures of socialism. It's not the successes of capitalism. It's not left versus right. That's not what you're looking at. Um, what happened in Venezuela and what the issues that we try to highlight are criminal issues, issues of corruption, like um, Nelson was discussing, human rights violations, um, massive amounts of, uh, you know. Uh, malnourishment and and, and, and an exodus of, you know, unproportioned, you know, proportions that you can't even imagine. And so I think, you know, when you look at it in the political conversation, everyone goes, oh, well, this is really a far right opposition, you know, looking to oversee this sort of socialist uh, left leaning government. And, you know, that's not necessarily true. You know, the failures of the of, of Maduro is, aren't failures of socialism. They're failures of of sort of criminal corrupt activity. And the opposition isn't really a far-right opposition. If you actually look at the party platforms of the opposition parties of Voluntad Popular, which is Leopoldo Lopez and Guaido's party, or of Capriles's party, um, they have platforms or had platforms, because now they're really more focused on getting rid of Maduro. But previously, their platforms really were what we would consider left in this country. I mean, they were very much about redistributing profits uh, from the oil sector. They are very much about those types of... Um, programs and, and, and redistributing wealth. Um, so, you know, I think the idea that we're looking at, uh, what we're looking at in Venezuela is a failure of socialism is just, it's really not the conversation that we should be having. It's not really, and it's really not what, what happened, you know, and what then, we're looking at. Then what did lead to Venezuela's economic collapse? Uh, there's hyperinflation and, as you said, escalating starvation, disease, crime, mortality rates. Basic necessities like water, electricity, food, and medicine are either in short supply or not available. Uh, this in a, in a country where the government supposedly cares about its people mm -hmm. and had, uh, I think, was the sixth largest uh, oil producer in OPEC. Yeah. Yeah. So what do, do, is it just simply as some supporters of Chavez and, and Maduro say, 
that um, it, this is the result of an economic war in Venezuela and, and falling oil prices? No. Also, international sanctions. The, it, the country, you know, and, and, uh, I'm not and, an and economist. The country's business salute. I'm, I'm not. You know, we're like. Uh, I'll I'll respond to all these things from experience and from my filmmaker perspective. You know, because at the end of the day, you know, I consider myself. I, you know, I'll speak for Max too a little bit. Like, we are a channel for the voices of the people that are in the story, which is our characters. And some uh, specialists, you know, like uh, Ricardo Hausman, who's a Harvard economist, and uh, Tamara Taraquik, who's a human rights um, spokesperson. So from my perspective, what I've seen in Venezuela is just a decline of um, basic values, you know. Um, and within those basic values, the, the check and balances that keep a country together just don't exist anymore. So when... Chavez became uh, president with the idea, you know, he saw this messiah idea of like overthrowing the, the, this like right wing uh, power that was keeping all the resources for, the, for themselves, you know, and forgetting like the, the, the people in general, you know. So, but what, what ended up happening is that Chavez and the people around over time became what they were trying to overthrow, you know. So, Yes, the pendulum swing from one people to the next. Yeah, as Max is saying, it's not necessarily a right versus left. Uh, it's just a group of people who just control power. The difference between now and, let's say, the 80s or the 90s is that, yes, oil was uh, you know, more profitable, profitable, but also the infrastructure worked. You know, um, the university, like the Universidad Central, which is the main university, was was top ranked university in Latin America. Our healthcare system was one of the best in the world in the 70s. You know, we had um, what else? Yeah, I could go on and on describing like all the powerful things that Venezuela had to offer. As far as we were, we were a country that sometimes I describe to my friends as a mini United States. You know, we we took in uh, people from Italy. Uh, people from the Caribbean, Colombians. We had a Columbia, massive migration yeah. of Colombians, you know. Uh, so we were a country that was very prosperous, but what happened is that slowly, you know, with this party system that centralized power, they just, uh, they also uh, absorbed the private sector and they nationalized it. And what they did is like over time they broke it. You know, the simplest example I could give you is PDVSA, which is the oil company. They had Chavez fired 20,000 employees in 30 minutes or something like that, you know? And this is a company that has been uh, structured over like 70 years with over 100 PhDs in oil. So imagine the infrastructure that was lost in 2002, you know, this is 20 years ago almost. So over time we lost every private sector and within that, you know, imagine, you know, the mass migration of over 5 million Venezuelans now you lose the power to, you know, sustain a society. So it's a little bit of everything. It's really hard to boil it down to like a quick explanation, but it's, you know, the decay of society over time and then the ruling of a, of a small group that's very, very corrupt. I remember when Venezuela was uh, praised for having perhaps the best buffalo milk in the world. Uh, <laughs> I don't hear about that anymore. That's crazy. Now, I don't even remember seeing buffalo there. <laughs> and there used to be so many uh, right off the, the coast. Uh, the uh, a UN report estimated in March 
2019, so we're talking a little over a year ago, that 94% of Venezuelans live in poverty. More than 10% of them, uh, that's over 4 million, have left the country. And Venezuela led the world in murder rates with an 81.4 per 100,000 people killed in 2018, making it the third most violent country in the world. Now, yeah. how, what, where are the police for the, uh, how come so many people are being killed? Are they being killed by the government or is this just uh, gangs shooting at each other? I think yeah I mean I can talk a little bit about it I think when you look at these facts right it's hard at, at this point when you're looking at UN reports and you're trying to say why is this happening I think it's really difficult now at this point to say it's happening because of X Y and Z because the amount of factors that are going on to the collapse of the country are many so many at this point you know maybe and I'm not saying I'm not saying this is the case. I'm saying at one point maybe you could say, oh, it's because of this bad policy or that bad policy, or because of the you know unfortunate fall in the price of oil. You know, you could point to one thing, and then you could kind of do this sort of causal chain. You know, but I think at this point you're really looking at something that's gotten so complex that it's really hard to point to any one thing. You know, crime has in some point, in some cases, it has to do with government. Um, you know, oppression and those types of things. But, you know, that's not really what you're looking at in a lot of those tallies. You know, there's also a lot of crime as a result of the fact that people are starving and have nothing. You know, you what you end up doing when you end up having these sort of situations of extreme um, poverty and desperation and the sort of in influx of uh, illegal sort of activities, you know, crime has to do with uh, ransoming with drugs, with, you know, a million different things. And so it's really hard to point to, to, to any one thing. I mean, I think something that's really interesting to point out in this moment and is what's going on in the Amazonian region of Venezuela. And this is kind of an example, kind of, talk, it's kind of an extreme example what you're talking about. You know, when you're talking about the murder rate, you know, oftentimes it's, it's being referenced with, in, in, in discussion with uh, Caracas or some of the central areas where data can still be collected, right? And that's almost a luxury at this point in Venezuela, the idea that you can actually collect data to see how bad things are going. But in most parts of the country, things have gotten to the point and things are so bad that it's they, there's no data anymore because anyone, any of the organizations or any of the individuals who are there who would collect data are prevented from doing so or they just don't exist at all. And an example would be the Amazonian region uh, that borders Colombia in Venezuela, that's an area that has been completely, almost it's almost entirely run by non-governmental um, organizations, paramilitary groups from Colombia, um, illegal mining, illegal everything. And so that's a, that's like a black hole where you, all of the data that you're referencing right now, like is only talking about the areas where we still count the data, but there's massive portions of the country where we don't even know how bad it is because it's too dangerous to go in and find out. Literally. Mm -hmm. And that's um, I think that's what we're talking about when we talk about how difficult it is for people to imagine what's going on in Venezuela. You know, you can you give these numbers like you mentioned off the U.N. report, this many, you know, five million people have left the country, this many people murdered, this many, you know, 150,000 kids uh, in 2018, I believe, 180,000 dying of malnutrition. But, you know, that's just what we know about. And those are just estimates. You know, the real numbers are probably worse. 
And, yeah. and, and I think that's the biggest problem that we have to deal with is, you know, not only how do we solve the problem there, but how big is the problem? You know, like what are we even looking at at this point? You know, because anything we look at now is probably an underestimate of what's actually going on. And Donald Trump warned in some speeches that if we vote for, if we elect Joe Biden, we're going to have Venezuela and the United States. Um, this is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. A song in praise of Maduro, Todos con Maduro. Uh, we're talking about Venezuela uh, with the uh, co-directors and producers of a new film called A La Calle, To the Street. Uh, they are Nelson G. Navarrete and Max Caicedo. I hope I'm pronouncing your names correctly. Uh, yeah. And, yep, and it, pre it premieres on uh, the 11th of this month uh, at the Doc NYC Film Festival. Uh, can you tell us more about that? Do you uh, you know how people can access it? Um, yeah, so our film is premiering on the week of November 11th through November 19th. And um, it's going to be on Doc, and you can visit just docnyc.com. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's going to be a festival that um, you can buy basically a, a ticket and you can see it during the whole week. You can also visit alacallefilm.com if you want more information. Um, there's also, you know, many great films, but this is our premiere. Um, and Had you made other films? Again. No, 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 not in this festival. And not yet. This is our first feature for Maximi. And when did you begin yeah. filming? We began filming uh, around the protest of 2017. That was the that was the window of time where we started um, investing into um, like exploring what was going on in Venezuela. So early 2017, late 2016. And were you or your film crews in danger as you shot some of this footage? Um, do you want to answer, Mike? Yeah, I mean, so we, you know, Nelson and I, uh, as, uh, we never actually went down to Venezuela ourselves. Um, for a lot, for multiple reasons, what we ended up, what we ended up doing is uh, managing teams who are local um, to to capture the story. And so, you know, and the reason was for that was multiple, um, and it has a lot to do with what you're discussing was to limit danger. Um, now and as then, um, filming and documenting what was going on in the country is a bit of a it's the it's dangerous. It's not it's not the safest thing to do especially if you're doing doing something so in a way that's not necessarily favorable to the government. Um, and obviously a lot of what we cover in our documentary are, is really horrible and it shows a lot of human suffering and it definitely implicates um, the government into some uh, human rights abuses. And so for us, we our primary, uh, our priority was to fly under the radar. Me, I'm Colombian American. I have a terrible accent. I could never go down there. I would stick out like a sore thumb and Nelson um, for other reasons, couldn't go down there um, due to just 
being, you know, coming in from from outside of the country, coming in with no equipment, that type of thing, just raises mm-hmm. a lot of red flags. So what we tried to do was just rely on local teams who lived there, who had equipment down there, and who could move around the city without necessarily raising those red flags. Because again, our priority was safety, but also to get the story, you know, and and we're not going to get the access, and we're not going to know how to move in that country in the country like people who live there and, and can kind of feel the pulse of what's going on a lot more uh, sensitively. So, but, and they were at danger. Yes. To answer that question, our crew down there, it's incredible that we were able to get this story because of the amount of repression and, and, and censoring of media that was going on. I mean, you know, at the time, especially in 2017, when the protests were really in full swing, I mean, you couldn't go a day without, some sort of story of a media, some sort of member of the media, either, you know, national within Venezuela or international, being shot uh, through rubber bullets, tear gas, being detained by the police, um, those types of things. Even following that, people who were kind of involved with the protests or were seen being filmed there doing things would have their cameras confiscated, would be questioned. And so, and, you know, a couple of our, um, a couple of people who shot for us were detained by the police um, there. Can't mention names and we can't go into too much detail for safety reasons. But, um, you know, so yeah, so they, thankfully no one was, you know, injured terribly. No, nothing really um, happened that, you know, there's a lot of stories um, of where things kind of went really bad for people, um, media who were covering what was going on. But thankfully we didn't have, you know, in our team, any of those, um, any of those cases, but they, they were at risk for sure. And as you mentioned earlier, in your film, we meet uh, opposition leader Leopoldo Lopez, uh, the former mayor of a part of Caracas, whose arrests and imprisonment inspired national protests. What was he charged with? I I laughed. This is under Chavez? This is before Maduro, right? No, no. This is under Chavez. Um, And I laugh. I don't mean to laugh because it's not funny, but it is what... It, 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 when we asked what he's charged with, what ended up being, it, it was sort of a, a long, uh, his arrest warrant was kind of long and there was a lot of things um, he was accused of. But I think what ultimately became the charge was using subliminal messaging to incite violence. Um, but wasn't murder I mean, one of the, the, the first charges, although they dropped that? Murder? Yeah, yeah when, when, when the terrorism, murder, uh, treason, I believe, was also in the original... Um, you know, warrant that went out for Leopold's arrest. There was a laundry list of things that he was being accused of. And what ended up being actually the thing that put him in jail and that the court, I suppose, deemed was legitimate was using subliminal messaging to incite violence, even though there's a lot of video evidence of that day showing that Leopoldo called for peaceful protests. And it's pretty much fundamental to his, you know, the, his general statements and public statements about what he wants to do, which is peaceful protest um, within the country to enact change. You know, he looks up to uh, Nelson Mandela and Martin Luther King as his, as people, other public figures he likes to emulate and, and, and quote. So all, you know, people who were known as um, pacifists. So anyway, um, he, he was indicted on that. And, you know, kind of when you get into things where you're being, you know, when you get into the territory of being, accused and imprisoned for 14 years for subliminal messaging to incite violence, you've kind of steered outside of the realm of, you know, legitimate conversation about it. You know, you've just kind of moved into 
you know, you want to put this guy in prison, you're going to do whatever you can. And that's kind of what happened to Leopoldo um, at that point. And uh, you got some amazing access. Your your camera crews actually filmed him in his prison cell. And then later when he was under house arrest. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah, getting a lot, in, of, a lot of the access that, that Leopoldo um, what was given us through the documentary was actually, most of it was actually filmed by him because he was right. heavily secured. It was a heavily secure prison. He was watched. Forgot how many guards, but sometimes as he said multiple, no, like five, six. I remember. So yeah, that was um, there's there's no way we could have brought like a crew in there. So a lot of the footage we have of him are from himself. Some are like a uh, family, and you know, some we can't you know disclose. But a lot of the um, interviews we had with him with over time, just me and Max talking to him uh, online because we are very limited access yeah it would have been nice to film <laughs> but um because of security it was impossible and his whole family was affected his wife didn't want him to lead the protest yeah that i mean i think so there's a funny little anecdote about us talking to um leopoldo is you know initially when we and we got better at it with time but initially when we started talking to him uh via skype and recording and all that, he would oftentimes tell us, um, I can't talk right now because there's a, the, the surveillance van is outside yeah. of my house. And that was a text message we would get all the time. And really, and, and we'd have to postpone. And, and I think what he ended up telling us is there's a van that came by that would often be parked out of his, outside of his house that, you know, I don't know, we, I didn't know, we didn't know for sure, but that he suspected was listening in on whatever he was doing and saying. And there would be times where it would leave or we'd have short little windows where it wouldn't be around or he would be able to, you know, um, felt comfortable that he could speak um, without necessarily being uh, listened to. And those were the moments where we got in our little our little conversations. Um, you know, literally the first conversation. It, during the whole been, time, it was dangerous yeah. for him to speak to us. Anything. So, but, you know, he, he he got moved from a prison, from a political prison to actually from a military prison to his home prison, or basically um, just being at home and guarded. Yeah. House uh, arrest. He, yeah. he was house arrest. Sorry. He was banned from uh, speaking in public. He actually uh, came out with a video. And that's when they took him back to prison. So he wasn't able to say a word to the public. So everything he was said to us. Uh, throughout the years uh, could have been used against him to bring him back to prison. So it was, it was very difficult to get him to open up, you know. So we had to do it in uh, specific times, in a specific way, um, you know, because it, a lot was on the table for him, you know. But he, he got some support from the Spanish government. He lived in the Spanish ambassador's residence in Venezuela for a while, uh, uh, to, to escape house arrest. And and now isn't he in Spain? Yeah. Yeah, his, his relationship with the Spanish government is a little, it's not as, a, it's not official. And I actually would, I don't want to speak on it too much, but I do know that he, for his own safety, was able to seek shelter within the Spanish ambassador's home as a guest of the ambassador, Spanish ambassador to Venezuela himself. It didn't. It wasn't. Necess- it wasn't um, considered asylum or anything official government thing. And I and it's, I'm not really sure. It's a little bit of a gray area, so I kind of want to stay away from talking about it because I, I may speak out of turn. 
um, with what uh, technically was the what allowed him to stay there. But yes, he, his family um, does live in Spain. Um, and Lillian, when she fled the country um, with her children, with their children, um, went to Spain uh, to join um, Leopoldo's uh, mother and father um, out there, and and that and that's where Leopoldo recently went. Um, so there's. There's some relationship there. I'm not exactly sure um, what what the what the technical uh, jargon would be to describe it. Um, but they they have definitely given uh, his family a safe place to, to to stay right now, as of now. Now, well, first of all, I should tell people who my guests are. Uh, they are Max Caicedo and Nelson G. Navarrete, the uh, co-directors and producers of a new film called A La Calle. Uh, which premieres on the 11th of this month at the Doc NYC Film Festival, which will be available online. This is Leonard Lopate and WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. You mentioned Juan Guaido. Doesn't Venezuela have two heads of state right now? How does that work? Hey, on, uh, I want to say first, uh, Leonard, um, your pronunciation of her name and then the film and everything is really on point. <laughs> I just wanted to point that out. Oh, uh, yes, because I, I studied so. Spanish in junior high school. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> I like it. <laughs> it's really cool. Thank you. Um, I mean, you're in New York, too. You know, New York is pretty international. So. I grew up in, uh, in a, a neighborhood that had a lot uh, a lot of Spanish-speaking people, Williamsburg, Brooklyn. But anyway, um, oh, well. let, let's get to Juan Guaido. Um, he, uh, hasn't he been recognized as Venezuela's legitimate leader by about 60 countries, while Maduro has about 20 countries recognizing him? Yeah. Yeah, Guaido, as a head of the National Assembly, um, and eventually as a interim president, was recognized uh, for I believe more than 50 countries. I don't know exactly the number right now, but I believe it's close to 60. And yes, Maduro is also recognized for, by less countries than him. So there's a division of uh, institutional decisions between both parties. And uh, it seems like the international community uh, wants to balance the decision-making on uh, what resources are given or like the way I see it is, is uh, there's so many immigrants that could be sustained throughout the years. And if this problem keeps growing, um, it, it throws off the balance of other countries around the world. So I think the international community wants to help. And this is one of the decisions to support Guaido, in my opinion, uh, is to bring um, the international eye fair elections you know that's why those purpose in this whole discussion is to bring venezuela back to fair elections and by doing mm -hmm. you know by having the support of the international community uh he's we're getting closer and closer to that um so yeah the, you know a lot of decisions are very conflicted you know the, for a year for example i have cousins who couldn't get a passport you know because like who <laughs> Where do you go to get a passport? You know, like who's the actual, you know, like whose presidency is the one giving them the passports, for example. So, you know, imagine the amount of uh, problems that go under that decision, you know, like who manages what resources, et cetera, you know. But yes, it is it is a split of power. Technically, in Venezuela, the power is very is controlled in the country, mostly by the Maduro, Maduro's party. 
So hasn't support for Guaido declined since there was a, a failed military uprising attempt in April of last year? It's it's gotten more complicated. Um, I'll I'll say that in terms of the support for Guaido, I think I think what you what you look at and what you have is you know you have this opposition, you have a large part of the populace that's suffering that's looking for change, and Guaido and the and, and his movement really represented change to a lot of um, a lot of the country, and there was a lot of hope and momentum going into his proclamation as interim president to achieve free and fair elections. You know, within that year, they were you know making a lot of really decisive movements, um, both internationally and nationally, toward achieving um, a moment where they could say, "Okay, you know, Maduro, you know, you're out of power. We're going to have free and fair elections." And I would like to note that Guaido has said him has said that when they hold free and fair elections, like he would not run. And so, you know, this isn't necessarily Guaido trying to you know get free and fair elections to put himself in power. It's, it's really um, about the elections themselves. And, but his support has you know, waned. I wouldn't say it has waned necessarily in the sense that I would just say people's excitement and belief that um, change was Im- imminent um, has sort of tapered off. You know, it really felt when Guaido was doing his thing in 2000, uh, when, you know, all that whole year of 2019, that it was going to happen. And people were really excited about that. You know, oh my Where's God, he living right now? around the corner. Um, Guaido. Yeah. He's still in Venezuela. Uh-huh. So he isn't in danger. Well, that's, and kind of, that's what you're, that's, I mean, he's the recognized leader by over 50 countries. You know, is there someone who's safe, you can't really compromise or a step that Maduro would take that would maybe push it over the edge. It would be to endanger the recognized president. And I think that's another thing that's really important to note about the Maduro regime and about Maduro and the government there is they're not dumb. You know, these people aren't just these blind actors that aren't sensitive to the sort of international implications of their actions. There are lines. There are there are things that you can and can't do. You know, they don't have to touch Guaido. That doesn't change the fact that they have control over the military and most functioning of the of the government. You know, the Guay Guaido is, in, for a lot of intents and purposes, um, a symbolic leader in terms of de facto power within the country um, over the military, over a lot of the oil resources. Um, I, I will say that you have to take that with a grain of salt because a lot of uh, Venezuela's resources internationally have been given to Guaido and the government um, through sort of legislative and court, uh, court decisions. But... Um, but, you know, Maduro knows that there is a line that you can't cross. And once you cross that line, you start to invite more decisive action from the international community. And I think that's a large part why Guaido has remained uh, more or less safe. Um, we have just a, a couple of minutes left, but uh, I was, I've was i read that Venezuela is, uh, is particularly vulnerable to the wider effects of the pandemic because of its ongoing socioeconomic and political crises uh, that have caused shortages of food, staples, and basic necessities, especially medical supplies and equipment, and Mm -hmm. a mass emigration of Venezuelan doctors. So now there are chronic staff shortages in the hospitals. Yeah, I can speak that from maybe like a personal level. My family comes from the medical side, and um, I have uh, one uncle left on the 
in Venezuela who's still there because, you know, he has strong roots there and he's not able, he's a, he's a surgeon. He's not able to go to the hospital and perform surgery for the past six months because there's no protocols being followed, especially during a pandemic, you know, and he's over 60. So, you know, imagine like uh, one of your best surgeons can go perform surgery. So, and that goes, and he, you know, he works at a private hospital. So imagine everything below that, you know, a doctor nowadays with 10 years of preparation could, could, make $1 a month in Venezuela. So the health in the public sector especially are broken and actually Venezuela right now is, is it's needed on of humanitarian aid and in, in a large scale, you know, um, it's, um, it's almost like a humanitarian crisis, especially with the pandemic on top of it. So and we, have we, to are, leave it we are facing something very different. Okay. We've been talking about A La Calle, a new film co-directed and produced by my guests, Nelson G. Navarrete and Max Caicedo, which premieres on the 11th of this month at the Doc NYC Film Festival and will be available online for the duration of the festival. Thank you both so much for being on our show. Thank you so much, Flamer. And that brings Thank us you, to the end of today's show. If you're new to our program and would like to hear more, you can access all of our past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as a podcast on iTunes and anywhere else that podcasts are available. And there are links to all of our past shows on our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you want to comment on any of our shows or just say hello, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off, I just want to take a minute to ask for your support for BAI. We're asking all of our listeners who have the finances to do so to step up and make a tax deductible contribution at whatever level you're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 516-620-3602 right now to keep the unique in-depth content we bring you on the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We really need your help to keep this historic station, the only one in New York City radio dial that's completely listener-sponsored on the air. So why not make that call right now in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large so we can keep on bringing you this uh, kind of unique long-form interviews that you won't hear anywhere else. And thanks to everyone who has so far. Um, I hope that we can be thanking you in the near future. Um, we're off tomorrow, but we hope that you'll join us again on Friday when Chef and Bon Appetit contributor Lara Lee will discuss her new cookbook, Coconut and Sambal, that features classic dishes from Indonesia's diverse and underappreciated cuisine. We'll see you then.